If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and look with me at verses 13 and 14. While you're finding that text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come now once again in prayer asking you to enlighten us with your word, penetrate our minds with truth, infuse our hearts with desire for you, give us the hands and feet to serve you, Lord. I pray that the word this morning would be effective in us so that we may be effective in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, And the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. We have here a description of a wide spiritual pathway. In the pathway there's a wide gate. And the implication is is that people go through in big groups. It includes a broad road. The English Standard Version says an easy road. Some Greek manuscripts even say wide and easy. It's a Greek word that means spacious, lots of room. This wide spiritual pathway, Jesus says, leads to destruction. And the majority of humanity will enter through it. And Jesus gives us a description of the narrow spiritual pathway. There's a narrow gate And the implication is is that you go single file, individually, one at a time through this narrow gate. It's a constricted road. English Standard Version says the road is hard. It's a Greek word that means afflicted, oppressed, distressed. This narrow spiritual pathway leads to life and these small minority, few of mankind... The minority of humanity enters through it. And with this knowledge, Jesus gives the imperative, the command, enter through the narrow gate. This is the human responsibility aspect of salvation. But the question I'd like to ask this morning is, what is the wide gate? What is that? Is it simply that all people who are not saved, is that the way that they go? Well, in a general sense, that's true. But the wide gate is compared to the narrow gate. The wide, easy road is compared to the hard road, meaning there's some similarity between the two. The very next section, verses 15 through 20, warns not against being irreligious or having no religion whatsoever, but rather, Jesus warns against false prophets, those who claim to have the truth, true faith, but they give a false faith, those who would pervert the gospel. The section after that warns against being a false believer, a religious pseudo-Christian. And so the wide road, the broad gate, it's, it's not necessarily just any road other than the gospel of Christ, but it is the road of religious pseudo-Christianity in its many forms, emphasizing the easy forms of the gospel. Well, here in Matthew 7, we've been examining what I've called warning signs on hell's highway. And in fact, I, I took that title from this text, the wide road, the road to hell. And Today, Jesus is warning of the wide and easy road, the spacious road with lots of room on it. That is the road of what I will call easy believism. Easy believism says that all you have to do to be saved from your sin is to pray a prayer or go to church or declare that I've turned my life around and that there's no cost involved. And in fact, easy believism 
basically says there's two types of Christians. There are the Christians who really serve and follow Christ, and there are the Christians who don't serve and don't follow Christ, but they're all Christians because they pray the prayer, made a profession. Some who espouse a type of easy believism are vehemently against any talk about there being a cost to follow Christ. They say, oh, it's legalism. That's works-based salvation. A few years ago, we did a brief New Testament survey to see what the New Covenant Scriptures, the New Testament, has to say about this. Is there a cost to following Christ? Or do I simply rely on the memory of a prayer I said, a a profession I made, a one-time experience I had? Or worse, do I rely on somebody telling me, oh, you're a Christian? Do I rely on that? In the easy believism camp, which honestly is now most of evangelicalism, faith is defined as merely being intellectually convinced that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who believe him for it, doesn't take into account anything like sorrow for sin, turning from one sin, or submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so, obedience to Christ will not necessarily be manifested in every Christian's life. In fact, some will use the phrase that on such and such a date, I asked Jesus to be my Savior, and then a few years later, I asked Him to be my Lord. I'd actually like to go on that New Testament tour again. We did it a number of years ago, five or six years ago, because I don't need to explain Matthew seven thirteen and 14 to you. The rest of the New Testament will do it for me. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to take a look at numerous other passages as well. This will definitely be a page-turning morning. The great Charles Spurgeon proclaimed, quote, if the man does not live differently from what he did before, his repentance needs to be repented of and his conversion is a fiction. In other words, genuine faith in Christ involves and includes turning away from all that you have worshipped in the past, your own sinful desires and wants, and turning toward Him who is worthy of worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith will cost you. I remember listening to a radio commentator in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who was highly into easy believism. And all kinds of people would call in and would say, I'm still living with my boyfriend and I'm doing this and I'm doing drugs and I'm, I'm in this horrible life, but I went to church camp when I was seven and I asked Jesus into my heart and this horrible, terrible person on the radio kept telling person after person after person, well, then you're saved. You're in Christ. You have nothing to worry about. You need to have confidence in that profession you made as a seven-year-old that's putting a millstone around somebody's neck and sinking them down into the depths of depravity even farther what does the new testament say about our faith costing us i'm reminded of the lord jesus in luke 14 exhorting the one considering christ needs to count the cost luke 14 33 jesus said So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And just a few verses earlier, Jesus said that every person must count the cost of following Christ. The easy believism movement says that becoming a Christian does not cost you anything. It's an easy road. We used to call this the easy believism movement. Now we just call it American evangelicalism. One of the errors of easy believism is that they're very choosy about which scriptures of the New Testament support their position. So we need to ask the question, does the New Testament as a whole support a faith that costs? That following after Christ comes at a price, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. Does the New Testament as a whole support a faith that includes repentance, a faith that includes a life that involves being made more like Christ, suffering for your faith, standing for your faith, hurting for your faith, living a lifestyle which demonstrates your faith. Time doesn't permit us to be comprehensive, but we can be representative. So my basic goal this morning is to have the New Testament put easy believism on trial. And easy believism must answer to eight witnesses. And then you can be the judge. And so we'll say that court is in session here. You're in the judge's seat to listen to the witnesses. And the prosecution 
goes right for the jugular immediately and calls the star witness, the first witness that easy believism folks must answer to is the fact that Jesus taught that faith in Christ is costly. Jesus taught that faith in Christ is costly. The first witness is Christ himself. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, this is his first message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know the word repent. It's a Greek word which means to know after. It it means a certain knowledge that's been acquired. And then it results in a shift in how you think about something. It means to change your mind. It means to change your way of life as a result of a complete change of your thought, of your attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It means to change your direction. It even means conversion. It expresses every kind of regret and sorrow and disgust. And some might say, well, that's just, a, that's just us foisting our meaning on the word repent. Well, what did other people outside the Bible do with this word that we translate repent? In extra-biblical ancient literature, the word is used for feeling remorse, changing behavior, even being converted to something. It was used by many secular writers with the first known use about 500 years before Christ. It was used by writers such as Plato, Josephus, Philo, Marcus Aurelius, Lucian, the Hermetic writings. That's just a very small sample list. The biblical use of repent means to change your mind about sin and wickedness, which, which results in a change of direction is that idea is completely consistent with how that word was used for the 500 years prior to the New Testament. So the easy believism position that faith and repentance are are kind of the same thing, that stands alone. No other ancient writer would say that. Turn to Matthew 8, Matthew 8, verse 18. Matthew 8, 18, if you're taking notes this morning, probably the most useful thing you can do is just note all these references because they're self-explanatory. Matthew 8, 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice the, the scribe said, I will follow you. He had enough intellectual belief in the person of Jesus Christ to make a verbal commitment And how does Jesus answer? Verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus essentially said, I don't own anything and I often sleep outside. Are you coming? You know what screams volumes? There's no answer from the scribe. That says it all. He turned away. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, and disciple here is used as an initial follower. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Well, the problem was is his father wasn't dead. This was a colloquialism. It's a popular cultural expression for, let me wait until my father dies, until I inherit the family business, make a lot of money for 10 or 20 years, put some money in the bank, then I will think about following Christ. How did Jesus answer? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead worry about worldly things. If you want to follow me, give that up. It's now or never. Turn to Matthew 10, 38. Matthew 10, 38. Here's Jesus' standard. Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus is going to use the imagery of the cross. And I want to be very clear with you. We have to put ourselves back in their shoes. His listeners would know the idea of the cross only as one thing. A means of execution. The condemned was made to take up his cross and carry it to his own death. Just as Jesus would. So understanding that that's the only meaning they have attached to this. Matthew 10, 38 And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
taking up your cross to the original listeners meant a one-way trip to your own death. The person taking up his cross has died to his whole way of life. All that is dear to him is forfeit. To take up your cross was to willingly accept a death sentence to yourself. And so Jesus says that if you find your life, meaning that if you keep all that the world has to make you temporarily happy, then you will lose your life. But if you want to find life, then you must lose yours. Jesus says this also in Mark 8 and in Luke 5 as well. So what is this repentance, this willing giving up of all that you hold dear look like? What's the quality or the flavor of repentance? Turn to Matthew 11, verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. Repentance is not merely an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Son of God and offers forgiveness of sins. It's not an emotional moment where you shed a tear. Repentance has a quality to it that's passionate, it's poignant, it's pitiful in many ways. Matthew eleven twenty. then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes, what is that? That is a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of grief and it's public. It's you saying, I'm so sorrowful over my sin and I want everybody to know this. And it indicated the promise of a complete change of direction in life. Turn to Matthew 19, verse 21. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler who's claimed to follow the law of God. He believes himself righteous. He's young He's a synagogue ruler. He's rich. He works to obey the law. What does that mean? It means that all the other Jews would view him as the ultimately blessed man of God. His wealth would have been seen as proof that God has blessed him. And so what does Jesus say that this man must do to gain eternal life? Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. Jesus had accurately identified the idol in this man's life. And he said, give it up. Count the cost. What did the man do? He went away. Luke 18 also records this exchange. If Jesus was an easy believism proponent, he would have made no demands. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is going to demonstrate with his famous parable of the soils, that the seed of the gospel falls upon different types of hearts. Mark 4, verse 5. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. Jesus explains the rocky soil, the rocky heart. In verses 16 and 17, in a similar way, these are the ones being sown on the rocky places, those who, when hearing the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. The the point is, what does the true Christian endure for his faith? Tribulation and persecution on account of the word. Turn to Mark chapter 6. In Mark 6, verse 12, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in pairs to preach the message of the gospel that he tells them to preach, and it's not a complicated message. Mark 6, verse 12, and they went out and preached that men should repent. There's a clear message. That was their message. Repent. Turn. Go to Luke chapter 5, if you would. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Luke 5, 31. When Jesus was questioned as to why he was eating with sinful tax collectors and those who didn't even try to follow the law of God, irreligious Jews who just kind of went along for the ride, they weren't really particularly religious in any way, 
When he was questioned, Luke 5.31, Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. He ate with those sinners, yes, but he was calling them to repent. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Jesus has just said, as we saw earlier, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Luke 9, 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say farewell to those at home. What's that a euphemism for? Let me make my conversion to Christ as easy on my family as possible. They need to be in support of my following you. I need to explain to them what I'm doing and and, and gain their support, gain their approval. And how did Jesus answer? Verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting to me, I've been a pastor long enough to have had a lot of people tell me, you know, I'm really, I I think I'm going to think about becoming a Christian. You know how many people in my experience have ever come back and said, I've thought about it and I've decided to become a Christian. Zero. Jesus said, don't look back. Look forward. Look to Christ. Turn to Luke 19, verse 8. Luke 19, verse 8. Jesus comes upon the tax collector Zacchaeus who's been convicted in his heart of his own sin, and how does he express his faith in Christ? How does he demonstrate his salvation? Luke 19, 8, But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Stopped. This is a word that means officially stand up and make a proclamation that is, that is weighty. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Not salvation through the actions of Zacchaeus, but salvation as demonstrated by the actions of Zacchaeus. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John 12, again, Jesus will make certain we understand the cost of following him. John 12, 25. John 12, 25. So clear, so obvious. John 12, 25, Jesus says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus said, where I am, there my servant will be also. Where is this? Verses 23 through 25, Jesus has just said he's about to die. I'm going to be dying. If you want to serve me, you will be too. Turn to John 15. John 15, verse 20. Jesus has just said that unsaved people will generally hate the truly saved. The lives of the truly saved will demonstrate who they are. They'll engender vitriol and venom and hatred. And so Jesus reminds them in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Christ will be persecuted if you're a follower of Christ to live in a way which avoids suffering for your faith. That demonstrates you're not a servant of Christ. You don't actually follow him. So Jesus taught that following him costs. And in our little court case, Jesus gets down off the witness stand and Looking very scholarly and smart is the only Gentile witness, a physician, Dr. Luke. He is a man of detail and accuracy. Luke is the second witness that the easy believism camp must answer to. Luke taught that faith in Christ is costly. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Luke, who was Paul's ministry companion and helper, is the undisputed author of Acts recording with perfect accuracy the events of the early church. 
And he records that the Apostle Peter, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching his famous gospel message. And what is his conclusion? Acts 2.37. The conclusion of this sermon, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Oh, you don't do anything because that would be works-based salvation. We said, Repent! Turn, change your minds, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts 3.19. Acts 3.19, Peter is preaching again. What is his basic message? Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Turn to Acts 8.22. Acts 8.22. Now here, Peter is addressing Simon the magician. And Simon had seen that the Holy Spirit was being given to Samaritans, the the normally despised people who were part Jew, part Gentile. And so he offered the, the apostles money for the power to dispense the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.22. Peter said to him, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Turn to Acts eleven eighteen. Acts eleven eighteen. The Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles. This is a stunning development as far as the Jewish apostles are concerned. But they had to acknowledge this when, when Peter relayed to them that he had witnessed this among the Gentiles. Acts eleven eighteen. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is granted to them. Turn to Acts 14.22. Now we've already clearly established that the message of the gospel is recorded by Luke in Acts is repentance. Repentance. But this means that by totally aligning yourself with Christ, you're, you're taking a stand. Not a cultural Christianity stand, but one that will cost. In Iconium, in Antioch, Paul and his missionary team are preaching to the churches. And how are they encouraging them? Acts 14.22 They're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying... Through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of entering the kingdom here likely refers to the consummation of salvation, the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth. But what's the pathway? It's a pathway of tribulation. It's a Greek word that means affliction, distress, pain, agony. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Acts 20, 21. Paul is explaining to the elders of the Ephesian church exactly the gospel message he's been proclaiming. And notice the interaction of faith and repentance. Acts 20, 21. That he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are not treated by Paul as identical as the easy believism proponents would say. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that's devoid of repentance isn't actual faith. So Luke has made his case. We'll excuse him from the witness stand. And now coming up, a man battered and scarred with the wounds he's received in his body for the gospel of Christ. A man man once confronted and, and blinded by the Lord Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul. And he's the third witness the easy believism camp must answer to. Paul taught that faith in Christ is costly. And boy, does he have a lot to say about that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, Paul is establishing the particulars of the gospel. And look what he says about those whose lives do not change. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Verse 4, God's kindness leads to repentance. Salvation is the work of God and regeneration which leads you to repent. Verse 5, the impenitent heart, the one who's not sorry for his sin, is doing what? Storing up wrath. This isn't some sort of carnal Christian who's saved but just not receiving Christ as Lord. This is someone bound for hell. This is someone bound for the righteous judgment of God. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Here's the question. Will Paul divide Christians into two classes as the easy believism folks do? Those who incur cost for their faith and those who do not? Romans 8, 17. That if we are children of God, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. The easy believism folks say that some Christians are heirs and some are not. That's an actual teaching that they have. But they don't take into account the end of the verse which says that the heir with Christ is glorified with him. The end result of salvation. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Paul addresses how we're to interact with unbelievers. Those who don't claim Christ, those who don't say that they're Christians, he says that they're sexually immoral, they're greedy, they're swindlers, they're idolaters. And he says, yes, interact with them. Be kind to them. Share the gospel with them. They're lost. So of course they act that way. You can't impose a standard of godliness on somebody who doesn't worship God or doesn't even claim to. But what about the person who says, oh yes, I'm a Christian And I've professed this publicly. I've been baptized. I go to church. What about that one who continues in unrepentant major sin? 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I am writing to you to not associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. And Paul goes on to say in verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Get this one out of the church. Why? Because they claimed Christ and yet their life did not change. They're steeped in evil and wickedness and that is not a proper witness. The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, now Paul's getting even more direct about what happens to those who continue in unrepentant agreement with their sin This isn't some sort of perverted grace that says, ah, it doesn't matter if you continue in unrestrained sin. Grace covers everything. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Did you notice that? Such were some of you before you became a Christian. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And what I want to point out to you is just have you see Paul's definition of of what happens with Christians for the sake of Christ. What happens with Christians for the sake of Christ? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. So just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And then verse uh, 7 as well. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. What does this mean? It it means that we share suffering. That's what happens to Christians. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Paul is delineating that a person has two choices. Live for self as an unbeliever or live for Christ as a believer. Those are the only two options. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all so that They who live would no longer live for themselves, but he died for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Who are the all for whom Christ died? 
for their sake, those who are no longer living for themselves. It's an easy way to think about this. Christ died for every Christian. And listen, this isn't someone who just verbally says, okay, I'm living for Jesus now. No, this is evidenced by new thoughts, new behaviors, new words. Why? Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The very next chapter, Paul defines the paradox of the Christian life that the true believer is, is rich in the Lord and yet we're, we're poor in this world. We suffer in this life. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 8. That we're regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold, we live as punished and yet not put to death, as sorrowful but always rejoicing, as poor but making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. To follow Christ means being treated by the world as if you have nothing. And yet the spiritual reality is that the Christian has everything. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, Paul expresses the absolute cost of following Christ. In Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Here's the cost. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The easy believism folks say that you can live a completely carnal, totally selfish life, and yet be in Christ. Paul says that the Christian life is lived as though Christ is living through him and in him. It's quite a difference. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Galatians 5.24, Paul has just given the outcome of, of receiving and possessing the Holy Spirit of God and salvation. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And he summarizes what a Christian looks like. Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Easy believism Folks falsely accuse us of believing that you must crucify the flesh and then subsequently come to faith in Christ. That's not true. That's a false argument. The flesh is crucified because you have come to faith in Christ. Now, this isn't sinless perfection. You still fight with a sin nature, but it's been dealt a mortal blow. It is, for all intents and purposes, dead. Still in his death throes, but in our struggle against sin, you should be winning that battle more and more because you're empowered to do so. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, what a tremendous profession of biblical salvation we have in Ephesians 2. That we're saved by grace through faith and not by any work that we could perform for God. But what's the result of that salvation? What's the, what's the next step? What's the thing that happens as a result? The result of faith. Ephesians 2.10 for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Turn to Ephesians 4. Paul harkens back to the, the calling of God, that God calls the elect to salvation in Christ. But does he say, but if you continue to live your life exactly as you had before, that's okay. Grace covers everything. No, he doesn't say that. Ephesians 4 verse 1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've been called to the glorious grace of God in Christ. And Paul says, walk worthy of that grace. Turn to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul is consistent in this message. In fact, this verse is considered by many scholars to be the theme verse of Philippians. Philippians 1.27, similar to Ephesians 4.1, only live your lives in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your lives in the manner worthy of the gospel. Faith in Christ is granted as a package deal with a life characterized by cost, by loss, by sacrifice. Verse 29 
of the same chapter, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, here it is, not only to believe in him, but also to what? Suffer for his sake. It's a package deal. Turn to Philippians 3. Paul is speaking of the righteousness of God that depends on faith in verse 9. And now in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what the Christian attains to. Paul, Paul isn't saying that he's earning his salvation, but he's saying that any cost is worth following Christ. He'll go through anything as one who will be resurrected. And again, this isn't sinless perfection as he Himself says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The response of being in Christ is to press on toward the end because Christ has claimed him as his own. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. So how fully is the Christian identified with Christ? If you went down to the altar, the church that does altar calls, or if you checked a card and, and you say, you know, on Sundays I, I, I really, I really want to know more about Jesus and then I, I go back to work. And, you know, Monday through Friday is really tough, but boy, I'm always glad for Sunday when I can, I can get back to Jesus. How fully is the Christian identified? Colossians 1.24, here's a shocker. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. What what is this? First of all, the word affliction here is never used in any of Paul's writings to speak of the atonement of Christ. It's not that his suffering is somehow completing the atonement. The pain of the price of sin, which Christ provided at the cross. What he is saying is that his efforts to make Christ known has had consequences. They've been consequences of pain. And in the sense that Jesus ultimately suffered for the message of the salvation he preached, the message of repentance, Paul is also suffering because he's preaching the same message. Let me put it to you this way. Two Christians are telling people, that they need to come to faith in Christ. Christian number one says, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe that he died to save you from your sins. And that's it. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to turn away from your sin. That would be a work. And you don't need to earn salvation by your works. You can't do that. Christian number two says, you need to repent. Turn away from your drugs. Get rid of your girlfriend. Go back to your wife. Stop being prideful. Stop acting like a thug. Stop getting drunk. Stop partying. Submit to your husband. Cherish and love your wife. Get into church. Submit to your elders. Which Christian is more likely to be beaten for his message? The second one. Jesus was murdered for that message. Paul would be murdered for that message. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. A quick survey of verses 1 through 8 shows us what a true Christian does. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 1, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God that you excel still more. That's what Christians do. Verse 2, you know the commandments we gave you. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he gives a list all the way down through verse 8. Consequently, he who sets this aside is not setting aside man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Why? Because we're not called to impurity. We're called to sanctification, to be set apart. And suddenly, you see that the Christian is now by nature different. We're changed. We're new. Verse 9 Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He's not saying that we don't need sermons on loving each other, or you don't need to go through a Bible study on how to love each other. He's saying the moment you were converted to Christ, you knew how to love others. You were changed. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
What's Paul's boasting and bragging about the Thessalonians? His boasting is that they're persevering. Their faith is shown to be real. And it's shown to be real by the cost that they're enduring for Christ's sake. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Paul says that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And what does this prove about the Christian? Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. In other words, the fact that they counted the cost, they're paying the cost, is a plain indication that they're truly saved. Turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, can someone call Christ Savior, but not call Him Lord, not call Him Master? Can Christ be my Savior and yet have no claim over my behavior, no claim over my life? Can I say, I would like Christ to be my Savior and then I'm really going to pray about making Him my Lord at a later time? 1 Timothy three fourteen. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And in the very next chapter, Paul gives a brief characterization of the genuine Christian life. Chapter 4, verse 7, you are to train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And this desire, this yearning to train yourself for the purpose of godliness, it it gives you assurance of your salvation. That's, That's where you get assurance. The very next verse, 1 Timothy 4, 8, for bodily training is is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Here it is, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, there is a cost to following Christ. You're paying the cost and that provides you assurance that you're in Christ. Look at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Here comes the attorney for the easy believism camp. Well, Paul, all a person has to do is intellectually believe that Jesus died for his sins. He doesn't have to behave in a godly fashion. His life doesn't need to reflect some sort of change. He doesn't need to pursue godliness. How does Paul answer? 1 Timothy 3, 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. What happens to the Christian? Jesus already said that the one who loves him will obey him. There's also a yearning, there's a longing to submit to Christ. And what happens as a result? 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Woe. There's no such thing as a non-persecuted Christian. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, 11. Paul is going to say that to all who are called by God, salvation will most definitely come. And then he tells us what the grace of God trains us to do. 2 Timothy 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, meaning all who would trust Him for salvation, instructing us, that denying godliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In the very next chapter, in Titus 3, 5, He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And the attorney for the easy believers in camp says, Aha! See, there's the one verse that I have that proves my whole point. We don't receive forgiveness of sin by works? Of course we don't. We don't believe that. They take it to mean that forgiveness of sin, though, has no relation to a change in behavior. Context is everything. Look back a few verses, Titus chapter 1. Here's the context. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, consider it, demonstrating all gentleness to men. Salvation in Christ has an effect, has an outcome. You go back four verses and there it is. Very next page, Philemon. 
Paul is appealing to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave, Onesimus. And because Philemon is a Christian, there's a clear expectation here. Verse 8, Therefore, though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I plead with you. And, and what's the expectation? Philemon's a Christian. Paul has no doubts what Philemon will do. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm really crossing my fingers here that you're the type of Christian who wants to obey Christ instead of the type of Christian who doesn't want to obey Christ. Well, Paul steps down from the witness stand. He's made an airtight case. A fourth witness comes up. He's anonymous. Nobody knows his name. The fourth witness against the easy believism camp, the writer of Hebrews taught us that faith in Christ is costly. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, after 11 chapters of doctrine, the author defines a Christian. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Christian is one who has laid aside the sin which, which uh, clings so closely, who runs the race of endurance, who looks to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of faith. In verse 2, then Jesus is exalted as the one who endured the cross because of the joy that would come as a result. And he's set up as our example. He's the one we look to. We're to consider him when we're under hostility. And then the writer assumes that the Christian is in a struggle against sin. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. That's a whole other topic. But you notice the assumption. The Christian is the one fighting his sin. Not the one who's carnal and worldly and living however he pleases. The writer goes on to say the Christians suffer under the disciplining hand of God even. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Well, this anonymous writer leaves the witness stand and now comes James, the physical half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He's the fifth witness. James taught that faith in Christ is costly. Turn to James 1.22 and he may have done so in more blunt terms than any other writer. The easy believism camp says, all you have to do is believe the word of God and you're saved. That's all you have to do is believe. Hear the word and you're saved. Really? James 1.22. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. James, he makes the point that the Christian life is characterized by change. By cost. And I think he does so more bluntly here than any other New Testament writer. James 2.14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And just to make sure we get the point, he puts the final nail in this argument. In verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Turn to James chapter 4. Can you be a Christian? and yet still love and be immersed in the sin of the world? James says no. James 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Now, as James leaves the witness stand, everyone knows the next witness. He's strong, he's confident. Definitely speaks his mind. In fact, he's the lead apostle. He's the one who would give his life for the gospel decades after his ministry. Decades of, after decades of ministry. This is the apostle Peter. He's our sixth witness. Turn to 1 Peter 2. Near the end of the chapter and into chapter 3, Peter explains that Christians follow Christ even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. That we submit to human government, chapter 2, verse 13, that servants are subject to their masters, chapter 2, verse 18, that wives submit to their husbands, even if they're unbelievers, chapter 3, verse 1, that husbands honor their wives as, as having just as much right to a great marriage as you have. And all of this is summarized in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christians follow in the steps of Christ. 
Turn to 1 Peter 4, right across the page. Peter will say in verse 1 that since Christ suffered, we're to think the same way. Since suffering takes away the urge to sin. Did you catch that? Suffering takes away the urge to sin. And here's the result. Chapter 4, verse 2. So as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And then Peter lists all kinds of sinful lifestyles, which he says for the Christian, that time has passed, it's done. And in fact, in verse 4, he says the believer is surprised, the unbeliever, rather, is, is surprised when the believer doesn't join them in sin. Then they malign you, then they get angry. Let me put it to you this way. If you're a Christian and all the unbelievers in your life are fine with your life, I would call you to account. In the same chapter, what characterizes a Christian's life? 1 Peter 4, 13. This is a Christian life, but to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. It says the same thing in chapter 5, verse 10. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Here's a question. Is the person who at one time, sometime in the past, made a profession of faith Does that person simply rest on that profession of faith as evidence of genuine salvation? Not according to Peter. Beginning in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he lists qualities which we are to strive for, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And as you observe these qualities growing in your life and and increasing and, and pushing sin out, it provides confirmation, it provides assurance of salvation, 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. In the very next chapter, Peter warns that false teachers will arise. They'll bring destructive heresies, specifically concerning the person of Christ. And Peter chooses an interesting word, To refer to Jesus. 2 Peter 2 verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master. What is it? We get our word despot, dictator. It's a technical term that means someone who has control over you. The orthodox position concerning Christ is that he is the despot. He is the dictator over Christians. And anything which diminishes that view is erroneous. It's dangerous. Turn to 2 Peter 3. Peter speaks of waiting for the end of the age, waiting for that glorious time of the new heavens and the new earth. And what is the Christian to do in the meantime? Are we to put on white robes and climb up in trees and wait for Christ like the Millerites did in the 1840s? That must have been embarrassing. No. What, what do you do when you think about these lofty concepts of new heavens and new earth? 2 Peter three fourteen. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, pursue a life of holiness. Peter gets off the witness stand And up comes his good friend and ministry partner, the one who would outlive all the rest, the Apostle John. He's the seventh witness. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. John, in many ways, is the most black and white of all the New Testament writers. He doesn't deal with a lot of nuances. In John's mind, you're either for Christ or you're against Him. There's no in-between. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, in stark terms, 1 John 3, 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed abides in them and he cannot sin. That doesn't mean that the Christian stops sinning at conversion. It just means that it's fading in you. There's no control over you. Turn to 2 John. John in, in 2 John blatantly equates genuine love for Christ with obedience. 2 John verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is blatant, it's obvious. Obedience and love go together. Turn to 3 John. 
In 3 John, John assumes that faith in Christ results in living for Christ. And he uses the common metaphor we're familiar with from the New Testament for walking. Walking with Christ is our conduct. 3 John verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. And John writes as if this is obvious. Listen to the simplistic language he uses in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Here's the obvious fact. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And then we get one more witness. Another half-brother of Jesus comes up. His given name is Judas. I don't think anybody's ever gone by Judas ever since then. So he prefers the nickname Jude. He's the eighth witness. Look at Jude. Now, the easy believism camp, they're on their last gasp of oxygen here. And they might come forward one last time to say this, but you can have Jesus as your Savior. He doesn't have to be your Lord. The grace of our God means that even if you keep on in all your sinful ways, you can still be a Christian. And so on the witness stand, Jude, the little brother of Jesus himself, stands up and boldly declares in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Who deny our only Greek despot. Our master, our Lord. Witness after witness after witness. Jesus himself, Luke, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude. Every one of them speaking of or writing the inspired word of God has vehemently said that faith in Christ costs. It costs you your allegiance to your sin. It costs you being the Lord of your own life. And it costs you your life. And if you're, in the judge, if you're the judge in this case, this is case closed, isn't it? And so you're about to say this case is closed and the gavel's about to come down and court's about to be dismissed. But there's one more witness. The first witness comes forward, not the meek and the lowly Jesus that we know from the first coming, but the one who had the first word will now have the last word. The risen, glorified Jesus Christ comes forward. And our glorified Christ tells John in Revelation 1, verse 11. Write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And what does he say to all these churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira? To all these churches, he says, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. I've seen it, and some of you are not doing as well as others. And what does he say to the church at Laodicea that don't think they need to do anything that shows genuineness of salvation? Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That is not an offer of salvation to unbelievers. That is a plea for a local church to let their Lord back in the door. Eight witnesses, plus the first witness testifying again, all adamantly against the easy believism idea. You probably figured this out, but we just scanned every book of the New Testament. Easy believism, as Jude said, is a perversion of the grace of our God into sensuality. You don't have to turn there. I just have a question for you. Here's my question. Do you understand? Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. I believe you understand that now. The most well-known evangelist in the past century, undoubtedly Billy Graham, 
He preached Christ to hundreds of millions around the world. And there's no doubt as to Dr. Graham's love for the Lord, a life which demonstrated faith. His ministry certainly had its issues, had its problems. The famous altar calls at his crusades could feel much more like emotional pressure than a true move of the Holy Spirit. His efforts to embrace everyone at times led him down very ecumenical roads. He never claimed to be a theologian. He shied away from theology, and he even said that out out loud. But ironically, he wrote 260 books during his ministry. But the very end of his life, he had one passion. He had one burden to write one more book. He wanted to clear the muddied waters of the gospel, and he wrote this. As I approached my 95th birthday, I was burdened to write a book that addressed the epidemic of easy believism. And a 95-year-old Billy Graham wrote the book, The Reason for My Hope, Salvation. It was published just a couple of years before his death and he wrote this. It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands. But this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. But this is the devil's lie. I am afraid that many Christians in their zeal to share their faith in Christ have made the gospel message too simple. Just to say, believe in Christ can produce false assurance of the hope of heaven. Jesus often spoke about the gift of eternal life. To make it clear, he said, count the cost. Count the cost. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I am consumed with a passion that never once from this pulpit would we ever give the impression to anybody seated here that following Christ is easy. It's not. You must take up your cross. You must be crucified with Christ and you no longer live. You're dead. Christ lives through you. But it's all worth it. The glory that will be revealed makes it all worth it. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity, the repetitiveness with which you proclaim this truth. I pray for every person here who is following Christ that they would have the grace and the strength as they are persecuted and they suffer in various ways for their faith. And I pray for the one who thinks he's following Christ but suffers nothing, has not counted the cost. I pray that he would count the cost and that your spirit would lead him to faith, to a life that is sacrificed on the altar of love for Christ. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.